Well, when you're expecting something to happen and it doesn't, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? (laughs) Now, imagine multiplying that moment of silence times 20, because that was 20 seconds. So imagine 400 seconds, how uncomfortable and awkward that would have felt. Now change the seconds to years. And you've got 400 years of silence. That's what happened in the time frame between the last of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. The Hebrew children experienced 400 years of silence. And then add to that that this is the last prophetic word they got before those 400 years started in Malachi chapter 4. It says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Last week I mentioned that in Malachi when the people are getting on God and want to know why he doesn't come down and judge the people they think he should judge, that God issues kind of a divine dead moment when he basically asks them, do you really want me to come down there? And now we find in this period between the Old and the New Testament, it's almost like the Hebrew children have been told by their mama to sit there and wait until their daddy gets home, then they'll find out what their punishment will be. 400 years, they're waiting. Waiting to hear. Waiting to see. Waiting to experience what God is going to do. Many of them are doubting. Many of them are disappointed, discouraged. Many of them are asking the question, God, where are you? And finally, God answers. He answers the question of where he is, and he answers it with the word Emmanuel, which means God with us. Where are you, God? He says, I am with you. I am here. See, God shatters the silence of those 400 years with the incarnation. The Word became flesh. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 talks about it when he says that Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be exploited. But rather he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. In taking the likeness of humanity. See, in the incarnation, God stepped out of heaven and stepped down to earth, right into the midst of their hopelessness, and He gave to them hope. Now, we've said this before, but it needs to be repeated. We need to remind ourselves of it all the time. There is a difference between secular or worldly hope and biblical hope. Worldly hope has with it an uncertainty. We don't really think it will happen. We're not sure if it will happen. We kind of say, well, I hope 
It probably won't, but, but it might. Nah, it's probably not going to happen. That's worldly hope, uncertainty. Biblical hope, godly hope, carries with it certainty. It carries at its core the understanding that there is a God who loves us and who, who is living and active. He's interacting with his creation, interacting with us, humans, man. And he is a God who fulfills the promises that he makes. So he's a God of hope. And so after 400 years, he speaks a word of hope to them. And he does it in the form of a birth announcement. Well, actually, two birth announcements. One birth announcement goes to an elderly couple who are barren. The other birth announcement goes to a young girl who's just barely started her childbearing years. One birth announcement goes to a couple who have been praying forever for a child. The other birth announcement goes to a young girl who has not prayed for this at all. One birth announcement goes to a couple who says, this is God's answered prayer and it is what will remove the disgrace that I have among the people. The other birth announcement went to a young girl who had to ask herself, what kind of hardship and disgrace might this bring upon me? See, it's two very different situations. Two very different individuals. And two very different responses. Let's start by looking at the elderly couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. It says, in the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children, because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. Right away, God begins to share with us as we encounter Zechariah and Elizabeth here at the beginning of Luke and tells us something about them. Tells us that Zechariah is a priest, that his wife Elizabeth is a descendant of a priestly family. And it tells us something about their character, about the kind of people they were. It says they were godly, they were righteous, they followed the commands and the ordinances of the law. They were good people. And then it also tells us that they were without child. She was barren, and now they were well along in years. Now, those statements there at the end, for the people of their day, that would have been kind of a contradiction. Because, see, they considered children to be a blessing from God. They considered children to be evidence of your walk with the Lord, of your godliness. And for them to say, They had no children. It it, it was hard. It was hard on Elizabeth. 
It was hard on Zechariah. Let's read on and find some more of what's happening in this story. In verse 8, it says, When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. As we said, Zechariah was a priest, and at this period in time, they had divided up all of the priests into divisions, and he was of the division of Abijah. And what they did with that, it was kind of a structural and organizational thing. They would call the divisions to come and serve in the temple. And when they were called, they would come and serve for a week, morning and evening, and perform the ceremonies and offer up the offerings and do all the things that went on. And so his division has been called to come to the temple and serve during this week. And so it's a great time for them. That that is a special time as a priest when you get to come and serve in the temple. But this year was very special for Zechariah. Because it says he was chosen by Lot to be the one who would go in and burn the incense. Now, this was a great honor, and it was something that would happen only one time, if that, in your lifetime. Some priests never got to do that, but at most you do it once. So here's his one time. This is the epitome of his service to God. This is his shining moment. He's chosen to burn the incense. Now, That may not sound like such a big deal to us, but it was for the symbolism that went into it. First, think about the temple. You had the temple area, you had the outer area and the outer courts, and then you had, as you moved in, you had the court of the priest. And as you moved in, you moved into a room called the holy place. And then beyond that, inside that was another room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And the Holy of Holies was the place where the high priest went on the Day of Atonement to offer up sacrifice for the sins of the people for that year. The holy place was just outside of that. And that's where the incense was. And so as he would go in to light, to burn the incense, All the people are gathered. The priest out in the court of priests praying. The other assembly of people out in the outer courts praying. And he would be in there in the holy place. And he would light this as symbolic of what was taking place. The smoke and the aroma going up to God, lifting up as the prayers of the people were doing. It's a highlight of his career. And so he is there in the holy place. Having lit the incense and now praying to God along with all the others who are praying in the other areas. And look what happens in verse 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. Just as an aside, I was listening to a sermon uh, the other week and uh, Mark Deva was preaching, and he was talking about various places in the Bible where uh, people encountered angels. And he says, it's always like this. They were terrified. They were trembling. They fell down on their face. He says, never once did they go, oh, aren't they cute? 
No, it's a significant thing when you encounter the angel of the Lord. And it says he was terrified and overcome with fear. But verse 13 says, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. That will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. So now this highlight of days, this this time that he has been selected to burn the incense, the the epitome of his service to, uh, to the temple, to God, now he experiences something even more, something more remarkable, if somewhat scary, but a visit from the angel Gabriel who tells him the news that he's wanted to hear all of his married life, that you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. What an awesome time for him, right? Well, let's look. Verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel. For I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. See what happened there? The angel of the Lord, Gabriel, comes and tells him in the temple while he's serving God, he says, you're going to have a son. And his response is, how can I believe that? It says that he looks at himself and sees an old, old man. And he looks at his wife, well, he can't call her old, so he says she's well along in years. But an old man and a woman well along in years who's been barren for who knows how long at this point. And he says, how can I believe that's going to happen? In the midst of all of these amazing things that God is doing in his life, he responds with unbelief. I can't believe that God. And look at the consequences of his unbelief. Pick it up in verse 19. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So here he has just been delivered a message by the angel Gabriel that he's going to have a son. And so you would think it would be opportunity for him as he finished up what he was doing in the holy place to come out in front of the whole assembly and just announce, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to have a baby. I'm going to have a son. We're going to name him John. But instead, he couldn't say anything. He's been struck mute. And it's even more significant when you consider again what he's doing at this point, his, his duties, his appointed uh, job right now. Because you see, the crescendo of it, the high point of it, was not just getting to light the incense. It was not being inside the holy place. The crescendo of it was... When he had finished in there, he came out to where the others were gathered, where they were still praying, and he stood, and he got to pronounce the benediction over the whole assembly and bring a close to everything that was going on. 
kind of getting selected to preach the convention at the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, you, it's a great honor to be able to step out and to address them and to speak this benediction. But instead, he couldn't say anything. Let's look at the other birth announcement. Verse 26. It says in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Now, when Gabriel came to Zechariah, he didn't waste any time. Right off the bat, he let him know exactly why he was there. I've come in response to your prayers. You're going to have a son. With Mary, it's different. See, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a son for years and years and years. Mary was not praying about having a baby at this point. Oh, maybe down the road somewhere, you know, when she and Joseph were fully husband and wife, when they'd had time to set up their home, when, you know, they'd gotten a little more, when she'd gotten a little more mature, you know, a little older maybe, but not now. And suddenly this angel appears from her, and it tells us that she is greatly troubled. Again, not how cute. But she's troubled by the greeting, highly favored. And she can't figure out why she's being addressed in this way. Why this angel has shown up. I like verse 30, just for the wording. Remember, she just said she was highly troubled, deeply troubled. She didn't know what was going on. Wondered what it meant. Verse 30, then the angel told her. Then he told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, How can this be? since I've not had sexual relations with a man. Now, when I was coming through high school, my teachers used to tell me when you are investigating something, when you're trying to figure out something, there are questions you're supposed to ask. And many of you in here know what they are. Who, what, when, where, why, how. That's right. Both Zechariah and Mary ask how questions. But they ask them from a very different place. And they ask them with a very different purpose in mind. When the angel came to Zechariah and gave him the pronouncement, Zechariah asked, how could this be? When the angel came to Mary and gave his pronouncement to her, she asked, how will this be? 
You see, Zechariah operated out of unbelief. He, he asked the question, how can I believe this? How can this possibly happen? This doesn't make any sense. Again, he's looking at an old man and a woman well along in age. And he can't see it happening. Mary's just asking for clarification. How will he do it? And so the angel answers her. Look at what he says in verse 35. The angel replied to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary says, how will this be? And the angel tells her, it will be a miracle. Because nothing is impossible with God. And look at her response of faith. Verse 38. I am the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word. I want you to understand something. The time in worldly perspective was not right for Mary. It was not a right time for her to be having a baby. I mean, it was going to cause people to doubt her. They're not going to believe this story that she's come up with. going to be an embarrassment to Joseph as well as to her. It may cause Joseph to question her integrity and her character. It's not a good time. Maybe it's not even a good time just in the fact that she's so young. She's too young to have a baby. The time was not right from the world's perspective. But this is not about... Mary's time. It's about God's timing. Paul wrote in Galatians that at the exact right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, that he might bring freedom to all of us who were slaves of the law. So that he might adopt us as his very own children. See, the time is right for God to send a Savior into the world. And a young woman shows tremendous courage. She shows shows tremendous faith. She shows tremendous trust and says, May it be done to me according to your word. How are we going to respond when God speaks? Are we going to respond in unbelief or in faith? Are we going to be like Zechariah and look at the things that limit us? 
Or are we going to be like Mary and just trust in a God in whom nothing is impossible? So this morning, I've got some takeaways for you out of this sermon. And so if you direct your attention up to the screen, we're going to see those. The first one is this. Even in times when God seems to be silent, He is working. Just because God was silent to them through these 400 years did not mean that God was inactive. God was working. God was preparing. God was preparing the people. God was preparing the economy. God was preparing the political structure. He's getting everything in place so that at exactly the right time, He could send His Son. And see, in your life, sometimes it seems like God's not there. Sometimes it seems like he's silent. But even when those times occur, know that that doesn't mean God's not working and moving in your life. You know, most of us sit down to a computer sometime during the the week. And we'll sit down and we'll start working in one particular program. But you know what's happening? All kinds of stuff are going on in the background, aren't they, Frank? And that computer, they're just going And we don't know what most of them are, and we don't care what most of them are. But they're there for a purpose. Without them, we're not doing anything else. The stuff working in the background. That's what God's doing when he seems silent. He's still working in the background. This morning, our choir and orchestra came and shared such an amazing uh, worship and song. And we see that. But most of us didn't see the days and the weeks and even months of preparation that went into that. Every Sunday, somebody stands on this stage and delivers a sermon. And you all hear and see that. But you don't see all the stuff that went on behind it, all the hours of preparation that went into a sermon. Just because God seems to be silent doesn't mean He's not working. There's always stuff going on, unseen, even unheard, until the exact right time. Second takeaway, when we hear from God, we can respond either in unbelief or in faith. You say, well, I'm not going to do either one. Well, you just did one. See, there's no such thing as abstaining. You say, well, I'm not going to do anything. Then you're choosing unbelief. You're choosing not to respond to what God is saying to you. You're either going to respond in faith or you're going to respond in unbelief. The choice becomes yours. Third takeaway. Even religious, godly people can respond in unbelief at times. Remember what he said about Zechariah and Elizabeth? Godly, righteous people followed all the commandments, did everything right. And yet when the angel of the Lord came to Zechariah, how did he respond? In unbelief. And I put that up there because I want us to be careful that we don't lull ourselves into thinking that just because we're Christ followers, just because we're believers, just because we're Christians, that we're always going to make the right choice by default. Now sometimes we can operate in unbelief, even as godly people. Sometimes something can come into our lives and take our legs right out from under us and all of a sudden we're questioning God, wondering where God is, wondering why God's not doing something. Look back to number one. Even if he seems to be silent, he's still working. 
So we need to be careful of our unbelief. And number four, faith often means operating within our personal uncertainty while trusting in the certainty of God. Our personal uncertainty, not knowing exactly how it's going to happen, not knowing how it's going to work out, not knowing all the ins and outs of what he's going to do. We're kind of in that uncertainty about how this is going to take place. But we're trusting in God and his certainty, knowing that he works it out, that he's in control. Well, there's one more takeaway that I want to give to some of you. And it's not up on the screen. It's not written there. It's being written on your heart. And Christ is writing it there right now. And he may have been writing for a long time, days, weeks, months, even years, to bring you to this point. Or it may have just started today. But you feel him touching your heart. You feel him writing. And that takeaway is this. God loves you. And he sent his son Jesus here at exactly the right time to be your Savior and your Lord. He sent him here 2,000 years ago for you right now to realize that you need someone to rescue you. You need someone to bring you hope. You need someone to bring peace into your life. Paul, in writing to the Romans, said, The God of hope brings joy and peace to you as you believe. Some of you need to hear that takeaway today. Christ came. He died for you so that you might be forgiven, so that you might experience joy and peace and hope, so that you might have everlasting life. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we thank you Thank you, Father, for the fact that you are always working, always moving. Always directing us, Lord, to where we need to be. Father, we just pray today that you would show each of us what takeaway we need out of your message. Father, speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name, amen.